Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. This is your host, David, and today we'll be talking with Matthew Pollock in his new book, Sarcasm in Paul's Letters. Sarcasm in Paul's Letters is the 182nd entry into the Society for New Testament Studies of Monograph Series, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. Matthew Pollock is currently at the Luxembourg School of Religion and Society. And he got his post, and he was a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Tübingen. He completed his PhD in theology and religious studies in 2020 at the University of Cambridge. And I hope you enjoy the interview for today. So, what we usually like to do to start out our interviews, we usually like to ask our guest just about their background and how they came to write their uh, book. So, Matthew, how did you come to write uh, sarcasm in Paul's letters? Yeah, good question. Um, basically, it started back in my master's degree. I was kind of in that phase that every master's student finds them in, where they have to decide, what am I going to write my thesis on? And at the time, I was doing some unrelated research on um, Second Corinthians. And as I was working through um, the latter chapters of Second Corinthians, I started coming across all of these examples of Paul being sarcastic. And it got me wondering, well, has anyone written anything on sarcasm in Paul? And I kind of did a search through the literature, found that this hasn't really been done before. And then I decided, okay, that's going to be my thing. And so that turned into a master's project, which got bigger and turned into a PhD project, which eventually turned into a book. So it's been uh, a long time coming, but it's been a really interesting research project. Through your researches, did you find that study and sarcasm throughout the New Testament was lacking in general or just in the subject of Paul? Um, a bit of both. So a lot of what we had, there was a bit of stuff that was done previously on irony in Paul, I think a bit on the Gospel of John, Gospels, but not a ton. This was a pretty, pretty tiny subfield. And within that, there's, there's some issues because and this, this is something that you see in all kinds of kind of literary studies disciplines that when we talk about irony, it's really easy to confuse different things because um, if you're just talking about irony, you're throwing in kind of situational irony, verbal irony, sarcasm. And so it wasn't quite clear all the time what we meant when we were talking about irony and Paul. Um, so I wanted to do something that could kind of clarify things a bit and just kind of narrow in on sarcasm, just kind of one piece um, and do kind of a really clear, thorough job of doing that. 
So at the point, we really didn't have any clear treatments of like sarcasm specifically in New Testament. And also there was a little bit done before in classics, um, but not a lot, just a couple of papers. So it was a very, very new kind of field. So I guess before we get to Paul, at the beginning of the book, you trace out the, uh, you trace out, I guess, how, how irony was maybe not originally used, but first used by the ancient Greeks, and you juxtapose Aristophanes with Aristotle. Um, could you just briefly explain for our viewers, I guess, what their views of I- irony w- were? Yeah, great. I was I'm just finishing up an article actually touching on one of these aspects. So this will be a good um, review for myself. Um, so how the term irony is used in ancient Greek changes um, in some of these earlier texts. So if I could condense history of the term really briefly, I would say so irony, the Greek term eironeia starts out in the earliest texts um, in Aristophanes, the ancient Greek comedian as meaning something like um, what Melissa Lane calls concealing by feigning. Melissa Lane did the work on kind of Aristotle through Aristophanes, sorry, Aristophanes through Aristotle. um, And her work on this is is, uh, really good. And I draw on that in my book. And essentially, so in Aristophanes, irony is, it's not what we mean by irony. It's a way of basically lying to avoid responsibility. And then this changes over time. There's a debate about what irony means when Plato uses it. Um, I agree with Melissa Lane that it's more like this kind of insult, this deception in um, Aristophanes. But with Aristotle, he kind of changes the meaning of the term irony. And it's because of the association of irony of Aeronea with Socrates that it gets a slightly more positive spin. It's still a negative quality, um, but it comes to mean self-deprecation. And of course, we're still very far from sarcasm here. It's much later um, in later rhetorical discussions where Irenaea goes from being self-deprecation to saying something, saying one thing and meaning something else um, or meaning something oppositional to what you said. Um, and from there, it branches off into different subspecies, species like sarcasm and self-deprecating irony. Um, and this is all kind of over a period of several generations. So by the time we get to Paul, Aeronea um, irony uh, is this more rhetorical meaning of saying one thing, meaning something different. And sarcasm is one species of that. So, so that's a lot of history in, in just a little bit of time. So when the rhetoricians and grammarians, I guess, started to investigate uh, irony, uh, what made them break from the definition uh, ironia used by Aristophanes and Aristotle? What what caused that break? That's a good question. Um, I have to think back to some of the sources. Following Aristotle, um, the f- I think the earliest time I see Irenaeus starting to mean something like what the later grammarians and rhetoricians um, take it to mean is in one of these um, early rhetorics attributed to Aristotle but isn't by Aristotle. Um, and I'd have to double check the, the title of that one. Um, 
But following that, even like take Quintilian, for example, for Quintilian, he still kind of has both meanings going on. He talks about um, irony in one sense as a figure and irony in one sense as a trope. And I believe it's the trope, which is kind of this rhetorical definition of which kind of sarcasm is one of the subtypes. Um, But as a figure, irony can still have this more Aristotelian, more literary sort of meaning. So these two meanings are still existing at the same time. um, But we have this more kind of um, rhetorical sense as well. And as to exactly when and why that change occurred, all we have are kind of these isolated little grammars. We don't really have much of a history. So it's, it's, it's pretty hard to say. So getting to um, updating um, Pauline's scholarship with modern uh, research with irony, um, uh, you go over, I guess, where you use uh, the term quests, uh, what were the what were the characteristics of just say the first and second quest of irony and Pauline research? Yeah, and this was one of the the biggest issues with previous work in biblical studies that has tried to deal with irony and sarcasm. Um, is that it's not really taking into account the most up-to-date work on irony being done. Irony studies is now a pretty intricate subdiscipline um, with a number of different theories going on. Um, but essentially, the problem really comes down to just kind of disciplinary conventions. So in biblical studies, we largely, um, our kind of hierarchy of academic texts treats um, books as like, the top level academic texts and then kind of journal articles are good, but sort of ranked below those. Um, but that's obviously not true of an, uh, all disciplines. And um, for example, in the sciences, it's all about journal articles and no one writes books. And so in irony studies, most of the kind of best and most used cited research going on right now is happening in articles. And Bible scholars have largely focused on the last big monographs in irony studies, which were written about 50 years ago. And so it's all very much out of date. So what I called kind of in a ton in cheek matter, the first quest um, for the for the nature of irony, this was kind of in the in the 70s and before. Um, and these are the big monographs that most Bible scholars are citing Wayne Booth's The Rhetoric of Irony. Um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of his name, um, Mirka, uh, his um, The Compass of Irony, and of course, Kierkegaard's master's thesis on irony. Um, and of course, they had their merits at the time, but irony studies have, cu- have come a long way. And the big shift is from um, semantics. So these older approaches are semantic insofar as they treat irony as something that has to do with meaning. So saying one thing and meaning the opposite whereas newer approaches are more pragmatic. Um, and pragmatics, has it has more to do with evaluation than meaning. So kind of whether you're complimenting or criticizing rather than what kind of the text means. And there's some picky distinctions in there, but they actually are quite important for how we make determin- determinations about what's ironic and what's sarcastic and what's not. 
So I guess my next question is how how does this how how does this new view of irony um, from the semantic to the um, how, how how does this play out in Pauline research? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think one of the most obvious ways um, is something that I illustrate with um, what in the book I call the parable of the disgruntled undergraduate, which is just a, a silly situation that I use to show the difference between thinking of irony in terms of meaning and thinking of it in in terms of evaluation. So, for example, you can be sarcastic without actually um, saying something factually untrue. So, for example, I use this example. So you could be, for example, there's an undergraduate sitting in a lecture. Um, and we have one know-it-all student in the class who's constantly answering all the questions and showing off their intellect. And so the student gets kind of annoyed and they say, wow, you're, you're just so smart. Um, which, of course, they're being sarcastic. They mean this as uh, criticism, uh, but they're not saying anything factually untrue. The student is clearly very smart, but they're also annoyed with them and they're expressing that annoyance sarcastically. And in, um, this shows up a few times in Paul where exegetes have in the past said, is this statement by Paul ironic? No, it can't be ironic. It can't be sarcastic because what Paul is saying is true. So there's several examples of this. One good one is, um, let's see, Romans 11 verses 19 and 20, where Paul um, talks is talking about kind of the Jews being, sorry, the Christians being grafted in to uh, the people of God. Um, and he says, so others were removed so that you could be grafted in. Great. They were removed because of un unbelief. You were, you have your place by faith. And so the sarcastic bit in there is this, um, which I just translate as great um, in Greek, kalos, which means good or well. Um, and so some exegetes would say when Paul is saying that, he's has to be actually sincerely agreeing with the position stated earlier in the verse, um, because otherwise it would be, if he was being sarcastic, then he'd be kind of negating this theologically important statement. Um, whereas I would argue that's not the case. Paul can uh, criticize the arrogance behind someone who might say that without saying that this theologically important statement is actually wrong, if that makes sense. Usually, scholars of New Testament uh, <clears throat> categorize, I guess, the true Pauline letters as the lucky seven. And it seems like the the uh, case studies that you've given uh, in your book are from the so-called lucky seven. So I guess my question is with the pin, with pinning down the use of irony in these case studies, is there a way to, did, is, was, could that be another evidence for uh, if this style of irony is only located in the lucky seven, like a way to demarcate between uh, uh, pseudepigrapha and I guess the authentic Pauline letters. 
Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question. And I haven't heard them called the the lucky seven before. I like that designation. I'll have to use that in the future. Um, it's a good question because this is something I wanted to maybe talk more about in the book, but really was something I didn't have space for um, when... Uh, you kind of have a dissertation and you have a word limit. I, I was very thankful that Cambridge did have a word limit. Otherwise, um, I could have written a very, very, very long book. Um, and I wanted to, I did some work on the uh, more kind of disputed letters, um, but it w- didn't really kind of fit the scope. Um, so I think, and I guess the interesting part coming out of that was it just kind of so happens that almost all of Paul's sarcasm is in these lucky seven undisputed letters. Otherwise, I didn't find any in the pastoral letters. Um, I found a couple kind of minor instances of sarcasm in Colossians. Um, And as to whether that can play a piece in this discussion of authenticity, I would say yes maybe but with a huge grain of salt so for example the situation can really play into it if paul is paul is usually using sarcasm when he's kind of got his back up against the wall when he's frustrated that sort of thing um philippians doesn't have any sarcasm in it first thessalonians doesn't have um any sarcasm in it and they're all part of the kind of undisputed lucky seven letters Um, So it certainly doesn't write off anything uh, if Paul's not being sarcastic or the author of these um, disputed letters is not being as sarcastic as the Paul is at his most sarcastic. Um, But I think it is certainly interesting that it is that there is so much less in the um, in the disputed letters. But I wouldn't I wouldn't make any kind of really fast claims on this. This it, at best, it's kind of a tiny piece in a much, much bigger argument. So I guess getting back to the one of the case studies in the book, um, just for an example, could you play out the uh, the, the 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 fools? Uh, no, in, sorry. Could could you play out the Galatians one six through seven, the ironic rebuke, in? <laughs> I guess how irony is used in that uh, situation. Yeah, great. So um, the issue here, so Galatians is kind of an outlier in terms of how opens the let how Paul opens his letter. He doesn't start with his kind of normal Thanksgiving section. He goes right into rebuking his audience pretty quickly. Um, and so a number of scholars has suggested that this is some kind of letter formula for expressing ironic rebuke and kind of how it starts in Greek and um, is with the term uh, thaumazo, which means it's actually a really interesting and tricky term to work with in Greek because it's one of those things that has uh, so many different shades of meaning that don't really always translate really easy onto like one English term. So it can mean like you're impressed or amazed by something in a positive sense. It can mean you're like shocked and appalled in a negative sense. And so there's a lot of shades in terms of how you can use it. And so it's something like Paul is saying, um, I'm amazed that you have so quickly um, 
abandoned he who called you and gone after another gospel, which is no other. I'm sure I didn't quote that 100% accurately. Um, (laughs) But it's something to this effect. And so my in my analysis i go through um this um suggestion in previous scholarship that this is kind of an ironic letter opening formula and in the end it turns out not really um a number of ancient letters open with this same verb it's used in a number of different ways but usually it's actually used in other letters to make your request a bit more indirect and you're trying to avoid conflict, Paul is actually a lot more um, pursuing conflict in his opening than normal. So it's not a letter formula, but it could very well be um, used kind of sarcastically here with Paul in the sense, playing on that sense um, that this verb can mean kind of like, I'm amazed and impressed. And so if Paul is saying, oh yeah, I'm so amazed that you've so quickly turned away from your calling to pursue another gospel. Like he's um, sarcastically saying, wow, I'm, you know, I'm impressed how quickly you were able to do this. Um, And then of course, um, he's very quick to clarify as well that this isn't another gospel. Was the use of sarcasm common practice in uh, epistolary writing or letter writing in the in the ancient world and antiquity? It's a good question. Um, a lot of the examples I use um, in the book don't come from epistolography, uh, and part of that is just utility. So I was trying to find as many different examples of sarcasm in the ancient world as quickly as possible, um, because since this hadn't really been done before, I needed to figure out as efficiently as I could, how did ancient Greek speakers express sarcasm? So I had to go for the most sarcastic writers. Um, And you have to go through, if you're looking through just kind of the documentary papyri, you have to look pretty long and hard to find any sarcasm. That's not to say it doesn't exist there. Um, when I was doing the research for the chapter on Galatians, I found kind of what I, I mean, there's always, you know, multiple ways of interpreting these things, but what I suspect was a, a pretty sarcastic letter from a father to a son, um, where the father was kind of really laying into the, um, overly polite sarcasm uh, with his son trying to kind of get him to uh, write back, um, which was actually quite funny. Uh, And so I imagine it wasn't uncommon in correspondence, but um, of course, most ancient letters aren't like Paul's letters. Paul's letters are extremely long um, for most ancient letters, which are usually very brief to the point uh, correspondences for various reasons, but, um, certainly sarcasm didn't exist in this context. And I'm sure it occurred a lot in everyday conversation at the time as well. Next question I have is, um, was Paul's use of irony, just an expression maybe of his character, just natural, or do you think that Paul was educated and, use 
learned the rhetorical techniques of sarcasm and used it in his letters. Yeah, that's that's another really good question um, that I don't have a cut and dry answer for. Uh, this question of what was the level of Paul's rhetorical education is something um, that's been debated a lot. And um, I, when I read, and this was a while ago, when I read um, Ryan Schellenberg's work on Paul's rhetorical education, I was pretty convinced by it. He essentially argues that none of the evidence that has been presented in scholarship for Paul, that Paul must have had a rhetorical education is really very convincing. And as far as I think the evidence of sarcasm goes, which is again, just one piece in a broader argument, I think there's nothing in Paul's use of sarcasm in Paul's use of sarcasm that says he must have had a rhetorical education. Um, there was a really, really good argue, um, article on irony. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the author. It was either, was it Colston? Was it Gibbs? Um, the paper's called Are Ironic Acts Intentional? Um, and I didn't get a chance to talk about it as much as I would have liked in the book. But essentially, he argues that like sarcasm and verbal irony are kind of more like a tennis swing. So you can like analyze a tennis swing in terms of like all of the angles and movements and um, kind of where you're aiming for. I don't play tennis, but, you know, it can be broken down in a really complex way. And it's the same thing when you're analyzing something like sarcasm, you can really break it down into kind of, oh, here's how the targets, here's all the things it's implying. Um, but when it comes down to it, these are the sorts of things that we do in everyday conversation all the time, often without really thinking about it. So Paul could have been crafting this in a really thought out kind of rhetorically minded way, or he could have been doing this in a much more spontaneous way. Um, I don't think we really have the evidence to say definitively which which is which. Uh, what do you hope to... Um, let me rephrase my question. Uh, with all this uh, analysis that you've done on sarcasm and the Pauline corpus, what do you hope for the researchers or maybe you in the future... Uh, could use could do with this uh, uh, analysis? Like what doors do you think have been opened up with your analysis? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of directions where this kind of thing could go. Obviously there's more stuff to be done. Um, I mean, I guess I went through 400 examples of sarcasm in ancient Greek there's room to expand, look at different contexts, dialects, time periods, um, but not just sarcasm. Um, for example, I talk a lot in the book about um, the Greek term asteismos, uh, which is essentially self-deprecating irony, uh, sort of the mirror image or kind of the opposite of sarcasm. Um, and I'm able to touch on that, but I don't get to go into tons of detail. So there's some of these other forms of um, irony, mockery that could benefit from the kind of analysis I do in the book. I'd also really love to see, and this is something that I've always said, like my next um, 
it's not what I'm working on right now, but I, um, if I, in five years time have my choice of project, I would really love to do just a really big study on humor in the ancient world and early Christianity. Um, I think there's, this has been touched on in some different ways, but is something that could be done to a bigger level and on a broader scale. And I would really love to do that. Uh, we'll just see if I ever get a chance. So before we go, we usually like to ask our guests about uh, any upcoming projects or uh, books in the works. So Matthew, do you have uh, any current works that you're working on? Yeah, so right now I'm in a new position um, in Luxembourg uh, at the Luxembourg School of Religion and Society. And I'm kind of doing a project that's a bit between project management and research. So I'm um, running a research network called Trust and Society. And the idea is um, to kind of bring together trust researchers uh, from all across different disciplines and to be able to connect research going on the subject of trust uh, with people in society who can benefit from that. Lots of the um, challenges and crises that we're facing today have um, kind of trust is an element in these. We're dealing with issues of misinformation, trust in science. We saw a bunch of this with the vaccines and we could multiply examples. And so it's really interesting being able to go in a completely different um, direction and work on that. And within that research network, I'm also um, doing a project of my own, which is going to look at um, kind of networks of trust relationships uh, in early Christianity. So uh, thank you so much, Matthew, for the interview. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.